Welcome to Most Popular, the podcast that finds social media filters fascinating and can also tell you why they are terrible for your brain. Because they are. I'm Dr. Adrienne Freerbenik. I'm your host. In case you're hearing this for the first time, I am a real-life college professor of sociology, and I created this podcast to combine my two loves, pop culture, and the impact it has on our lives. Today I am having a what I consider to be one of my favorite conversations with, um, I know that I say that a lot because they really are all my favorite, um, but Dr. Aaron Harrop is such an interesting person um, to have a conversation with. We are going to talk about uh, body image and um, body dysmorphia and um, the healthcare system and eating disorders. So this does come with a bit of a warning. If any of that stuff is sensitive for you or difficult for you to listen to, please take care while you're listening and know that there are resources available. Um, and I am always around if you want to talk about those. Uh, Dr. Aaron Harrop is an assistant professor at the University of Denver and also a licensed medical social worker. Aaron's research focuses on eating disorders, but particularly weight stigma and how we look at weight in terms of um, how people who are, who are considered, um, and I'm using air quotes, you can't see me, but considered obese by society standards, um, what that means when folks uh, exhibit symptoms of an eating disorder or have them. Um, their dissertation was an art-based uh, research a study of individuals with what is called atypical anorexia, and I'm going to let them explain what that means. I am very excited for this conversation. I hope you enjoy it. Um, I could not think of anything more connected to uh, where we are right now and as a society than talking about our body image and weight stigma, especially when you consider conversations that are starting to happen about the impact of social media and how it's affecting especially girls' brains, but kids' brains in general, and how that then translates into how we view our bodies. So uh, I bring you this discussion, and um, again, please take care while you listen. Thanks for having me. Um, so I have my very first question uh, is... Uh, a lot of times when we talk about research, I want to kind of start with your research. A lot of times when we talk about research, we people really get pigeonholed into thinking that research shouldn't be personal, that it shouldn't have anything to do with you, that you should pick something that you're like completely separated from because if, you, if you're in related to it in any way, like if you're connected to it in any way, then you are tainting your study somehow. Mm -hmm. And most of us know that's a bunch of hooey, but... Um, in your case, and in mine too, but in your case, uh, that's like the complete opposite mm -hmm. of the perspective you took. So can you just talk a little bit about what you do and why you got into this field? Sure. Um, yeah, I, I was going to say, if, if that's the definition of research that we're working with, then I have utterly and completely failed. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I know. And, you, you know, and, and, I, and I think, you know, honestly, when I think kind of about a paradigms of research, which is kind of what you're uh, talking about here, this kind of post-positive kind of objective, um, you know, we, we look at data, we analyze data with objective tests, and then we tell you an objective answer based on our statistics mm -hmm. and these objective measures. Um, uh, within each of those places where we, we think about objectivity or we think about being separate from our research, there's a, a bunch of assumptions that go in, right? Like, um, and, and I think uh, in kind of post-positivist scientist land, 
we like to believe that our measures can be objective, right? That if we use a standardized measure for depression that, um, that that gives us some kind of measure of a true depression level, or that if we use a standardized measure for an eating disorder assessment or body image, that that gives us uh, some measure of truth. Um, right. And I, I think I come from a, per, a perspective as a, a critical scholar and as a feminist scholar that um, that truth is a bit dependent on context and a bit dependent on who is seeing that and who is saying the truth um, and who we're looking at. So, um, you know, many of our, our studies are, are based on like white male Western populations, for instance, mm -hmm. um, even many of our like medical tests and uh, medications, dosages, like they're, they're done on a very kind of um, standardized typical sample um, that tends to what we call whitewash, which means kind of like assume characteristics of whiteness for yeah. everyone um, or assume characteristics of maleness mm -hmm. um, and uh, assume characteristics of cisgender, right? So there's, there's these uh, assumptions that happen um, and in those kind of objective paradigms that I'm kind of putting in, in quotes, um, the tendency is to assume objectivity and then kind of not question or interrogate uh, where that might not be the case. So uh, as a feminist critical scholar, I'm kind of coming at it from the other side and saying, um, I, like, I don't even believe that objective post-positivists can be objective. Yeah. I believe that um, by saying that they're ignoring some of their own assumptions, whether it's an assumption that a, um, of how a measure was developed, right? Like, you know, I mean, if, if you even think about like, you know, in the last two weeks, how often have you struggled with, um, you know, thoughts of not wanting to live. I'm thinking of like a, you know, a depression measure. Right. Um, and then you have to choose between, you know, all the time, most of the time, some of the time, a few days, right? Like that's, that's a subjective measure. And, yep. and the way that I answer that kind of question might be different from the way that you answer that kind of question. Um, and so just, you know, most of the time for me might be different than your most of the time. So, um, Anyway, I, I, I feel that a kind of a, a critical feminist approach is a, a bit more honest. You know, we can say truly, you know, I'm doing the best at characterizing reality as I see it and the reality as I experience it and maybe the reality as these participants tell me and I interpret yeah. it. Um, but yeah. I, you know, I can't say that this is, you know, truth with a capital T. Um, so uh, yeah, I, I, does that kind of get Yeah, it? I always think about it as there's no way for me to remove myself from what I'm studying. Like if I've picked it, I've picked it for a reason. It's not, I think we're sort of past the point in life where we can say like, I have absolutely no connection to what I'm looking at. And anybody who says that to me just seems to be, they're just saying that so that they appear yeah, I don't trust them. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like they, like they appear like they're just smarter than you or so. I don't know. Like it just, it seems more honest to say, this is why I'm interested in this. This is why I want to do this. And um, you do qualitative, you do mixed methods, but mm -hmm. um, with qualitative research, it, it seems to be that if you can present yourself as more legit, like, hey, I've, I have experience with this or I have knowledge mm -hmm. of this or I fit in your world in whatever way, folks tend to be a little more receptive to you. Yeah. Um, so that said, let's, let's talk about your research. Can you just sort of share a little bit of what your dissertation was on and, and what you focused on? 
Yeah, so I uh, looked at folks who had a history or current diagnosis of atypical anorexia. Um, atypical anorexia is an eating disorder um, category that is for folks who struggle with self-starvation, what we also call restriction, um, food restriction. Um, and uh, often we think of low weight anorexia, which is when um, people's uh, bodies kind of physically manifest a more emaciated form. Mm -hmm. Um, but anorexia as a set of behaviors and cognitions actually manifests all over the weight spectrum. So people can be high weight, they can be um, medium weight, they can be low weight and struggle with these behaviors. So this dissertation specifically looked at people in what we would call, um, quote, normal BMI, which is like a, a, a normal body weight to height ratio, um, and people who were in a higher body weight to height ratio who had these eating disorders. Um, and I, I looked at people too, who were kind of across, like some of them had a current diagnosis and some of them had it at a point in their past. So they could look back and kind of look like, remember their experience with the perspective they have now and yeah. kind of tell a little bit more about it. So yeah, I, I followed them for a year. Um, so there were 39 people. I intentionally did a kind of a purposive diverse sample. So I um, sampled with an intention to kind of maximize diversity along uh, several measures of identity. Um, and then uh, I talked to them about their concept of their eating disorder at the beginning of the study. After six months, we talked about their experiences um, with treatment and medical providers. And then at the end of the study, we talked about their experiences trying to get better, um, whether that was kind of progressing towards a remission or recovery, or whether that was more in a cycle of relapse or just continued illness. Um, and then along the way, um, we also uh, took kind of symptom measures every two months to see for each person, what did their kind of cognitive and emotional and social psychological functioning, how did that look and change over the course of a year um, for each of them where they were at in their particular journey with their eating disorder. Um, and then the, the other component, I, it, was a, it was a little complex because that's how I think. Um, <laughs> but I also, <laughs> these were interviews that were guided by art. Um, and so uh, participants had the opportunity to kind of visually represent their experiences and uh, verbally describe them. So it was um, sometimes we engage a different part of ourselves when we try and think visually versus mm -hmm. verbally. And so um, it was kind of a mixture of, of both types of data. Yeah, I was going to ask how did arts-based research factor mm -hmm. in because it's something that I'm seeing a lot more um, bleeding into people's work. Mm -hmm. And I feel like at this point, I'm like an early arts-based researcher, which is weird, but like I got my dissertation, dissertation. I did my PhD 10 years ago. And so that, that feels so odd to say, um, but I feel a bit like the early arts-based research crowd mm -hmm. and I'm psyched to see it becoming like a, a normal thing. Like there's entire conferences around it, yeah. things yeah. now. Um, okay. So just so we're clear before we talk about a little bit more in depth, um, just so we're clear on terms, can you explain the difference between typical and atypical oh, yes. uh, eating disorder and what's that, mm -hmm. what that means? Um, so, uh, so typical eating disorders are, are referring to um, diagnoses as they're kind of literally spelled out in the 
Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, so what we call the DSM. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, specifically, typical anorexia would be folks um, who have anorexia nervosa, so they restrict what they eat, um, they experience body image disturbance and fixation. Um, and then uh, their body, they have lost weight and their body, their weight loss has resulted in an abnormally low body weight for them. Typically, um, the kind of guideline for assessing what's like a low weight is considered a, a BMI of about 18.5, um, which is a, a certain like weight to height ratio in terms of like, um, it, it's in the metric system, so it doesn't make a lot of sense for us. Um, here in the US, but um, right. it's a ratio essentially is what you need to know. Um, and uh, it's also a guideline. So, you know, kind of the 18.5 is a suggestion and you can kind of, if, as a clinician, you can make a, a case for why someone with a BMI of 19 or 17 should have that diagnosis. Um, on the other side, sometimes people with eating disorders don't check every single box for criteria in the DSM. And so when that happens and some of the boxes are checked and some of the boxes are not for for symptoms, we call those atypical eating disorders. Um, And so atypical anorexia is an example of that. And that would be folks who have all the symptoms of anorexia in terms of their behaviors and um, their cognitions, but their body weight is still considered not low enough. (laughs) Um, And so again, these would be folks who have anorexia nervosa, but their body weight is either considered normal or okay, or it's considered higher. So um, in higher weight categories. So in other words, when people are considered fat or overweight or obese, pick your Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. descriptor, um, they're less likely to be considered they're not, they're less likely to, yes, thank you, to be considered typical. Yeah, so they would be considered atypical. Um, Occasionally you get medical clinicians who are, I think, really on top of things and they're able to make a case. They're able to say, hey, this person is experiencing all of these medical symptoms of starvation, so I'm gonna call this typical anorexia. Um, But that by and large is the exception, I would say. So what happens when somebody is um, fat and has an eating disorder, how are they normally received? Um, well, well, I know it's a big question. Yeah, um, I mean, I think first and foremost, people usually don't recognize it. Um, mm-hmm. Or the assumption when someone is fat and has an eating disorder uh, is that they are assumed to binge eat or quote, emotionally eat or mm-hmm. overeat or out of control eat, like substitute whatever whatever words you want here, that's assumed to be their eating disorder. Um, and in general, if, if someone who's, who's larger, they report that they have eating dis- an eating disorder, um, they're often not screened for things like purging, compulsive exercise, mm-hmm. restriction. Um, but the reality is that restriction is a, almost a, por- a part of every di- eating disorder to some degree. Um, it's, it, it's usually a part of a binge cycle, right? That um, Mm -hmm. people restrict and that can lead to a binge. Um, It's usually a part of binge purge cycles. Uh, People restrict and that leads to a binge purge cycle. And it's always a part of uh, restriction or self-starvation. So um, for folks that are in larger bodies, um, you know, they're normally not screened. 
Mm-hmm. Um, they're usually encouraged to lose weight. So if a person is engaged in an eating disorder, um, oftentimes they get affirmation from friends, family, medical personnel when their body weight starts to drop. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, you know, even if they are purging or compulsively exercising or restricting, um, and you know, doing things in an unhealthy way because this is an eating disorder, they still might have friends or family that say like, oh, this is great that you're like taking control of your life or that you're, um, that you're having these behaviors. It's great that you're doing so much exercise. I'm so happy to see you lose weight. You look fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um, doctors might say, whatever it is you're doing, keep doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so instead of people expressing kind of concern for an eating disorder, people are affirmed in their eating disorder. And, um, that leads to many things, you know, it leads to delay in them getting care, mm-hmm. it leads to them going undiagnosed. And it also leads to them kind of receiving like the exact opposite of what they would typically need in care for an eating disorder. Um, and, and, and so as a result, some people never get treatment. Um, some people wait years for treatment. Um, and then once people kind of start treatment, if you're fat with an eating disorder, um, oftentimes it's not good care that you get, right? People might, um, you know, sign you up for the wrong groups in a mental health agency because they think that you need one type of group when you really need another type. They might fail to believe you. Um, They might not account for weight gain, you know, like if a person has lost a bunch of weight in their eating disorder, they might not figure that, hey, this person might need to gain some of that weight back even though they're fat right? (laughs) Like that this fat body still needs to be renourished. And that often means that their body will grow. Um, So yeah, it's a, it's a hard road for people that are in higher weight bodies and and diagnosed with eating disorders. Because you like, you talk to people who um, were considered overweight, according Mm -hmm. to BMI, but who were restricting food, Mm -hmm. like, you know, on the regular, Absolutely. And that there, I think um, you said it in another podcast I listened to, mm-hmm. you're on a wonderful podcast called Maintenance Phase. So y'all, when you're done with us, mm-hmm. um, but you, you've mentioned this in, in your research too, that like, that their body just becomes accustomed to mm-hmm. not having the nutrition or not having yeah. nutrients. Yeah. And so the weight is, is not going anywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, and then as a culture, like it, to me, it sounds like it's the, the, the diet culture kind of phenomena that we see where we really encourage people, oh, you look great, you're so thin, you've done so much. And we don't consider what have they been doing to get yes. to that point. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, and, and, and I saw this, I, I was, I shouldn't have been surprised, uh, mm-hmm. but I was surprised even kind of coming with this perspective that I do have, which is with, uh, you know, someone with lived experience of an eating disorder Um, personally, someone as a clinician for eating disorders. So I've like seen it firsthand in the hospital where I do my, my uh, therapeutic work. Um, And so I shouldn't have been surprised by like how people showed up, but I was repeatedly surprised both by um, my own assumptions. Like I would be surprised, like I would see somebody's body and, and make assumptions in my head of what their eating disorder was about. And then realize like, gosh, that's just my own weight stigma, making that assumption. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was also, you know, sadly surprised at the severity of eating disorders that I saw in fat folks, um, that was being 
completely missed. Um, and specifically severity in terms of medical markers of distress and severity in eating disorders that were being just like, like big red flags that were being missed, you know, um, for example, um, people with uh, menses that lost menstruation. Yeah. Um, that's a, a big sign that yep. like restrictive eating has been going on and for a while, right? That there's a time component. Um, people who um, were experiencing orthostatic blood pressure changes, which is that when the body stops being able to regulate blood pressure um, from like uh, postures, like sitting to laying down to standing mm -hmm. up. Um, and that's something that can lead to cardiac arrest. Mm -hmm. um, uh, people that were presenting with uh, fainting, uh, you know, when standing up, which is another indicator of orthostatic distress. Um, people that had, you know, very low blood pressures, you know, blood pressures reported in the 30s and 40 beats per minute, which is Jeez. hospitalizable. Like that ah. is like, you cannot go home. If you were to show up at a primary care office with that blood pressure, they would not let you leave, right? No. Like, um, these are, so these are things that are, are not just like, Hey, something's wrong, but something is very wrong. Mm -hmm. Um, and it was explained by like, Oh, well, you're just an athlete, right? Like you just, you just have, you know, whatever, right? Like, um, or like, Oh, maybe your menses would come back if you just lost a little bit more weight, right? Like things that are like the opposite, you know, of, of what we should be looking at people with you know, ruptures of their esophagus from purging, right? Yeah. Where it, you know, like, like that's a very clear sign. Like that's not like, oh, this could be this thing or it could be this thing. It's like, no, like that's purging and that's deadly. <laughs> like, <laughs> like things that should, that, that are like, not, not really like, it shouldn't be like a, as a medical professional, we shouldn't have to like think too hard. Like this should be like one of those like waving white flags. It's like, hey, this person has an eating disorder. Let's investigate that. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so I, I was repeatedly shocked by the frequency of some of those symptoms that are reported because even in, in low weight samples, we don't always see all of those all the time because, you know, and this is, this is the big why because bodies react differently to starvation. Mm -hmm. based on a series of factors, you know, our genetics, our epigenetics, our trauma history, our context, our environment, our family history, um, like our, our, you know, the DNA that lives in us. So like, um, it, because of that, it can be a little tricky to like, see it, but some, you know, when there's these obvious signs, it's, it's really heartbreaking. Yeah. And we've also been trained very well as a culture that when we see, like we place people into very simple boxes when we see them, if you are mm -hmm. overweight, you're fat, if you're thin, then good for you, right? Mm -hmm. Like doors are opening and life is wonderful. Mm -hmm. If you're somewhere in the middle, maybe you're like the jolly friend, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, yeah. like we're very strict about where we place people. And if you're overweight, it's your fault. And you've done something to make yourself that way. And if you're thin, then you must have like the perfect diet and exercise. Yes situation going on <laughs> when that's so not even close to no. the reality that most people experience, especially yeah. as we age and our bodies change and things appear that you had no clue was even going to happen once you hit a certain age. Um, yeah. There's this like assumption that once we get to our quote adult weight, that like, it's like adult weight period, right? Like <laughs> that nothing happens in adulthood, like past 17 years old yeah. that like should change your weight, you know, and that, right. you know, like people freak out over like 
weight gain in college when it's like, okay, like sometimes like pubertal changes, like they're not done yet. Like they don't like magically stop when you graduate high school Mm -mm. because you've, you know, become an adult in society's eyes. Like things keep on changing and developing. Like people have babies, people have chronic illness, people go through different types of, you know, activity levels or, you know, job requirements where bodies like the wonderful thing about our bodies is they do change, adapt and survive. So yeah, um, to think of ourselves as like one static creature that like, you know, I've reached my quote adult weight and I should be here until I'm dead. Like that just, (laughs) (laughs) it's not true. It's not the way that biology works. I was listening to an interview with a guy who was on the big bang theory. Um, He was one of the kind of ancillary characters. And he was saying that from 18 to 19, he grew nine inches, Mm -hmm. which makes perfect sense. Like, and he said he was tall to begin with. And then he shot up into like six, six or something, which makes perfect sense. Like your body doesn't say high school's done. Now we have to stay yeah. this way forever. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't work like that. Um, re- that- oh. No, go ahead. I was just going to say um, in recovery from my own eating disorder at 22, I grew two inches, right? Like, because like my body had not been able to like do all of its normal puberty things when I was restricting. And then, um, when I, it finally did get nutrition, like I grew taller, my feet grew three sizes, like, you know, like my breasts grew like, so Mm -hmm. like, there's just, um, when, when our bodies have to delay growth for, you know, malnourishment or, you know, sometimes we see this with athletes, you know, like really high intensity athletes, their bodies change when the intensity of exercise lessens. So, um, like we just, we have to make room, you know, and what, you know, like people like that maybe, you know, gain some weight at the beginning of college or throughout college or something like there might be seen as like problematic, but if you grow in height, nobody's like, Hmm, what are you eating, Aaron? That's making you grow two inches taller. Right. Like, it's, <laughs> like we just don't have that mentality, no. but we might like, if someone comes back after like winter break from college and they're looking a little different, people are like, Oh, are you enjoying college a little too much? Right. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, like we somehow think that like one change is like completely under someone's control and that another change is just like, well, that's what happens when you grow. Like you just get taller, you know? Yeah. Um, it may sound, maybe this sounds trite, but obviously your experience with your eating disorder, is that what led you to studying this or like, was there, what was the journey like for you? Yeah. Um, so I, I, you know, I think I have always had kind of a fascination with bodies in general. Just, I, I think they're really cool and weird and interesting. Um, and, um, and it's kind of like this meeting of like the stuff of our world with like this kind of emotional, spiritual, psychological component. So I've, I think that that type of uh, intersection has always been really interesting for me. Um, and then when I became aware of my own eating disorder, um, which, you know, happened in kind of like my awareness of it happened in my teens. And then I could kind of see when it started, which was much earlier. Um, Then um, that became when I I wanted to actually do this type of work. Like, you know, I want to say probably at 15, I was like, this is the, this is the 
research and the stuff that I want to do. This is like the social problem I want to fix. That was, yeah. you know, and um, <laughs> it, you know, everybody is like, it'll change as you get older. And it just hasn't like, it's um, I, I knew kind of from a young age that this is the work that I wanted to do. Um, and I, th I think, I think I wanted to do it because for me, it was such a life changing mm -hmm. um, and not in a good way experience. Um, mm -hmm. And, and for me, part of my story was not having health insurance, not having access to care, mm -hmm. um, not having access to professionals who treated eating disorders. And so um, really wanting to change that experience for other people um, that kind of had, had a similar experience. Um, and then I, you know, I think for me, as I grew up with that eating disorder, um, like my body grew up too, right? Mm -hmm. So I, I started with a body that was called typical anorexia, right? So I started with a low weight body. I started lo out looking more emaciated and, and thin. And, you know, it was a little bit easier to tell that I was anorexic. I hope you can see all the quotes that I'm using here. When you're listening, um, she's using air quotes. Yeah. <laughs> They're using air quotes. The like typical air in air quotes. Yeah. Like. <laughs> yeah. I, 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 I feel like I need like just permanent air quotes around when I talk. Um, I'm the same way. And I said that to you in my email where I just said, <laughs> I'm so sorry. There's so many air quotes in this. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, as I, as I, I grew, my eating disorder grew as well. And, um, you know, I kind of, I found myself transitioning from a place where I was a typical patient to a place where I was now considered atypical and my body was considered yeah. larger and, and all of a sudden unacceptable. And, and so transitioning from having, like having the experience of being both a thin person in treatment and yep. a fatter person in treatment, you know, some people are fat their whole lives and they don't know what it's like to have thin privilege. Mm -hmm. And I was a fat person who um, knew what it was like to have thin privilege. So I had this grief process around like losing thin privilege. Um, and, and then I could also compare and say like, here was the treatment that I got when I was thin. Here's the treatment that I'm getting now that I'm larger. And like, some of this is really wrong. Now, mm -hmm. other people that were in treatment with me in larger bodies, they didn't, they didn't know it could be any different, right? <laughs> like, you know, and so I had this kind of, you know, and this is like, to your question at the beginning, which is probably partly what you were getting at, like, about like our identity and how it influences our research. Like, if I didn't have that intersection of identities of this history of thinness and this current experience of fatness, I don't know if I would have been able to see both sides in the way that I was. Um, and um, similarly, like, you know, a lot of the field of eating disorders of clinicians is thin clinicians. And so they, there are things that they just don't see. Mm -hmm. You know, I was, I was in a, a you know, a, a meeting yesterday with some eating disorder professionals. And some of the things that were said, like, they were just like, here's how it is in the field. And it's like, okay, well, that might be your experience because you're a thin clinician in the field and that's true for you. However, as a fat clinician, I experience this completely differently, yeah. you know? And so it's like, we can, you know, even as much as we try, we can only see so far without kind of hearing from somebody else's experience and perspective and trying to see the world through their eyes. Um, so I think that was, um, that shift for me 
I kind of shifted from kind of eating disorders in general to specifically looking at this um, atypical anorexia experience. Um, and, uh, it, you know, and that, and I, I would say also that 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 journey has also opened my eyes to like other places of um, where my own identity kind of blocks my sight. So like, you know, I am, I, even though I am fat, I still have a lot of thin privilege. I can ride an airplane relatively right. comfort comfortably. I can find clothes relatively easily. Um, I, you know, most, you know, I don't have issues with seatbelts fitting or, you know, I could ride a roller coaster if I waited in line, right? So there's um, places of, of privilege. I'm, I'm white, I'm educated. Like there's a lot of ways that, you know, even though I didn't have health insurance, like I still had a family that sought care. I had uh, people in my life who were able to kind of uh, help me facilitate care. I lucked into some financial aid programs, right? Like there are a lot of things that facilitated my experience that many people don't have access to. And so those kind of intersections of seeing where I had kind of privilege and uh, lack of access have, have kind of redirected me to think about like, you know, what do folks of color experience when they try and get care? How do mm -hmm. fatter people experience the care world when they get, when they try to get care? What happens to people without this kind of education to kind of facilitate, like, how do you interact with treatment centers or insurance companies to mm -hmm. get the care that you need? So, um, yeah, I don't know where I was going, but <laughs> well, <laughs> there you go. for me, what you were saying about, um, the other caregivers mm -hmm. that you work with, do you think that that perception that they have is rooted this is a really roundabout question. So mm -hmm. if I'm really reaching, please just tell me. Um, and maybe I'm just not thinking it through right. But do you think that that perception is rooted in our obsession with the BMI and how it's taught as like the, the way to, inter like if your BMI is within this range, then you're good. And, and a mm -hmm. lot of institutions seem to jump on board with, with that. Um, does that make sense? Yeah, I'll... I'll take a stab at it and let me know if I'm kind of going okay. in the direction. I mean, I, I do think that right now BMI is a huge shaping force in how people think about eating disorders. Yeah. Um, and, and so much, not just eating disorders, but so much of our medical knowledge in general and our medical care practice in general uh, is rooted around what I call weight centric care. So care that's very much focused on BMI, even when BMI isn't necessarily like the active ingredient in the potential medical problem, whether it's right. an eating disorder or some other health condition or chronic health condition. So yeah, I would say that um, whether it's our understanding as eating disorder providers or just medical care at large, um, BMI is kind of one of the biggest driving forces in how people kind of perceive body and medical need. Yeah. And, um, and also how care is, is pursued, like weight yeah. and weight management is like one of the most common thing, especially if you're fat, like, you know, and even, you know, even if your weight is acceptable, there's this like fear put in you of like, your weight's okay now, but don't gain any more. Yeah. Or like death could be coming. Right. Um, and like, if somebody's, you know, a little underweight, like, I don't think there's a, a ton of concern, right? Like, yeah. like, 
so um yeah it's uh <laughs> it's just interesting to me because and bmi is body mass index for anybody mm -hmm. not i'm gonna link um to kind of some basic BMI stuff mm -hmm. uh, for those of you who want to read more about it who aren't familiar with it. But my understanding is that BMI is problematic because um, one, it wasn't created for uh, what it's used for. Like it was created for, um, it, it was taken on by insurance companies, right? Like it became like a thing that they kind of rallied behind, but that's not what the purpose of it was. Yeah, so it actually was begun by, I think it, so this guy named, Adolf Quinlet. Yes. Uh, yes. I was trying to think of a mathematician. Yes. And really obsessed with normal curves. Like he, <laughs> he like, he had a thing for normal curves. And, yes. You know, for those of you that are listening and you're not familiar with normal curves, it's, it's basically like, if you've ever seen like a bell curve, that's mm -hmm. like small on the ends and then gets big in the middle, yep. um, basically mean, it means that like, many things are distributed like that. Yep. And it's really rare to be on either end. So if you think about it in terms of body weight and height, it's really rare to be very, 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 very thin. And it's really rare to be very, 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 very fat. Right. Um, and it's quite common to be uh, kind of in the middle or a little thin or a little fat, right? Like, so right. there's like, that happens a lot. And then the kind of like fatter and thinner you go, the less like, the less common your body type is, which yes. is why things like, you know, they'll talk about like supermodel thinness is common in, you know, less than 5% of the population. What they're saying is that like supermodel thinness is like at the end of that bell curve. Right. And, you know, um, I'm sure you can all think of examples from, from current media that talk about that kind of very, very fat part of the, the bell curve. Um, but yeah, so it was initially developed by this dude who really liked things that in nature followed bell curves. Um, height also follows a bell curve, which shouldn't be surprising, right? Yeah. Because weight and height are correlated. Um, there's lots of things that follow bell curves and they're really fascinating. And this guy really had a thing for this ratio. Yep. Um, and it was actually developed as a way of describing populations, right? And yep. so this is part of the misfit is that now we use this measure that was developed as a population descriptor to describe individual health, which is just, it's, it, it, it doesn't do that. It doesn't correlate. And there's, um, there's some great research articles that talk about the, the lack of correlation there. Um, but, and, you know, there's, there's these racist undertones with it as well in that mm -hmm. like it was developed as a way of, of showing which populations of people were considered more suited to what types of work. Yeah. Right. So there's this like built in racism, colorism, uh, icky, you know, and of course, like I say often in my classes, like it always comes down to slavery, right? Like it always comes down to this, like, like who is trying to have power over who mm -hmm. and who is trying to say that whose body is deserving or not. Um, and that's exactly what this measure was for, was to show like divergence from this white European male norm. Yep. Um, and you know, then, like you said, it was picked up by insurance companies and linked with um, basically how life insurance companies determined um, determined risk, 
right? Mm-hmm. So people that were very, very thin, like that wasn't healthy, that wasn't good. People who were considered very, very fat, like that was considered not healthy and not good. And so it, um, it, it, it was kind of this already icky racist population measure was kind of co-opted by like neoliberalism and capitalism to become this even worse uh, measure. And now we use that for an individual health indicator. Um, yeah. Instead of, you know, something like, well, first of all, we're assuming that like individuals have control of their health, which is apt up. Um, you know, and then, and then second, we're, you know, like there's so many other measures that we could look at, like blood pressure, um, activity, blood work, yeah. blood work, yeah, uh, blood sugar management. Mm-hmm. I don't know, like, access to green spaces like mm-hmm. I'm honestly like zip code would probably be a better measure of health right now mm-hmm. than um <laughs> yeah BMI. like we would probably be more accurate yeah because you could see how much exposure people have to you know unhealthy air quality and mm-hmm. if they can get green food and mm-hmm. if they can you know go outside and not have to be threatened by not just air quality but violence, violence. or yeah. Yeah, any of that. Just or if you just have a sidewalk you can walk on. Like I kind those of wonder, types of things. I kind of wonder like if you were to actually run a linear regression with BMI and zip code, if zip code would would account for more variability. Like I don't doubt that it would. I really think right? that <laughs> I really think that when we think about health, we're in such a narrow box of what health is mm-hmm. that we don't think about stuff like if you go outside, are you going to be safe? Well, that mm-hmm. is part of your health, but we don't consider that. Mm-hmm. We just, you know, say, go run around the block six times and yeah. then see if you're winded. Like, <laughs> yeah, it's it, it, like it, those things don't make money, right? Like the, the, yeah. these like large social factors that have so much, you know, even just like how many hours do you have to work mm-hmm. to sustain your living? Mm-hmm. And what level level of living is it that you sustain? Yeah, like, you know, I mean, like these things matter. You know, if you're working three jobs and you have kids at home, and uh, uh, you know, like you have a certain amount of like stress and blah blah blah, like like those those factors are hugely significant and predictive of health, and um, it's it's much more uh, beneficial, and it makes a lot more money to focus on you know, the individual being the problem and having complete choice over their health and health behaviors, which we don't. Yeah. Um, one of my friends, uh, the students listen to a podcast with him. It's Dr. Michael Gillespie and he does food inequality. And mm-hmm. so he doesn't just look at like, he, he looks at poverty too, but mm-hmm. he also looks at like, if you don't have enough, like you have enough to like maybe have a meal or two a day, but mm-hmm. that's it and what, how that affects, in his case, it's learning. So how it affects college students and their daily lives. Um, But those kinds of things to me are better predictors of where somebody is going to be and why their body is going to be in whatever shape it's in. Then, you know, if, um, I don't know, if you can go run a 5k or, Mm -hmm. you know, and of course that's a good predictor, but it's not the thing. Yeah. I've done a lot of uh, 5Ks and 10Ks. I, I live in Orlando, so we have Disney mm-hmm. races. Before mm-hmm. COVID, we had Disney races, which I always say are the most like fun way to do Disney World because you know you have to be there at four in the morning, but the park is empty. And 
I am always struck every single time I do it by how diverse the groups of people mm -hmm. are, how diverse the bodies are, and mm -hmm. just how none of it fits with the typical runner mm -hmm. um, look. And that to me says more about our perception of health than anything else, that there are these people that most people would say um, going into a running store, oh, is, I, is this your first day? And people are like, yeah. actually, no, I've run like, you know, six, 10 Ks or whatever. But that to me says more about where we're at than, I don't know, other, other BMI. I cannot think of a better way to end than a nice, good old fashioned rant about <laughs> why, why the BMI is jacked. Oh. <laughs> um, thank you. This was so fun. Thank you for taking the time to talk with us and letting us learn from you and what Absolutely. you've done. And I wish you all the luck. Thank you so much for listening. You can find more episodes of Most Popular on iTunes and SoundCloud. More information, including additional resources for educators, can be found on my website, which is adriantrier-bnick.com. And the website is also in the episode notes so that you can learn how to spell my name. <laughs> I am also on Instagram at at DrAdrianTV. That is at dr period. A-D-R-I-E-N-N-E-T-B. As always, thank you so much to my students for the encouragement to keep making these episodes, and I will see you next time.